Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music. For all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com/newsadfree. That's amazon.com/newsadfree to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. This week, I talked to George Eaton and Raphael Baer about Labour Party conference. Philip Morn and Kate Mossman talk about Elton John and the iTunes Festival. And our bloggers Sarah Dighton and Holly Baxter of The Agenda join me to talk about One Direction and what it's really like to be a teenage girl. joined by Raphael Baer, our political editor, and George Eaton, editor of the Staggers, to talk about the Labour Party as its uh, Labour Party conference coming up. Uh, Raph, for a start, you've um, written your column this week about kind of taking a snapshot of where the Labour Party is now. And where is that? Uh, it's in the New Statesman magazine, and I strongly recommend <laughs> everyone goes out and buys a copy and reads it. Um, the, I'll try and praise They are anxious and fairly miserable uh, and exceedingly concerned that since the last conference uh, where, by all accounts, Ed Miliband did very well. He made a speech that was acclaimed as a game changer. He launched a One Nation project. They really felt galvanised, thought they now had something they could rally around and go forward and take to the country. Uh, they they feel they've sort of gone backwards since then. The game changed back. Um, One Nation never really got off the page as a rhetorical device. It hasn't turned into an agenda for government. Um, and the economy is picking up and they really, they, other than the fact that the the electoral arithmetic and UKIP hurting the Tories and you know, slightly disconsolate Lib Dems bolting on, being, being bolted onto the Labour core vote mean they could still sort of nick a majority or be the biggest party in the hung parliament. They don't feel, they feel they can win, they don't feel they deserve to win and that's a very strong feeling throughout the party except at the very top where Ed Miliband famously has this sort of zen-like calm and confidence that keeps him going. Um, but even then, I think you're starting to sense anxiety. So it's very important that they, they do something at this conference to project the sense, not only that they can win, but that they feel that victory would be earned and would have something actually to offer, really, that the country would understand. And George, what are the things that people will be looking out for at conference? What are the big events? I think policies, and actually not just we would be doing this now were we in government, but we will do this in 2015. I mean, one, and, and they've been... Uh, hammering the government ever harder over this is, is repeal of the bedroom tax. And you've had the figures come out today that show half of tenants affected uh, are now in rent arrears, a quarter of them for the first ever time. There is an increasing body of evidence 
um, for them to say we need to get rid of this. I don't, but I don't think they're at the point yet where they can say officially it costs more than it saves, which they they'd love to be able to do. Mm. And if it's the case that they they're going to have to find the money through cuts or tax rises elsewhere, that does make it more difficult. And then, as I've, I've written before, I think housing should be the big policy issue that Miliband goes on in his speech, and he has been emphasising the need to build more houses recently, such as in his address to the TUC. Because you've got the government that's introduced help to buy, which has come under much criticism, not just from the left, but also from the for right. Fueling, for fueling, exactly. Our prices ever higher. Fueling a housing bubble without addressing what everyone agrees is the real problem, which is that of supply. And if Ed Miliband can come up with a bold slogan, like, we will build a million affordable homes um, between uh, over, over the parliament, then that's something that will get members excited, and that they can unite around, and that will give them something to talk about on the doorstep. As ever, the tension here is between the need to say things that will guess say, give the activists and MPs something to go out to the country and say, this is what a Labour Party means, this is what it would do. This is, crucially, this is how it would be different from the Tories, because uh, I think one of Ed Miliband's sort of stronger insights over the last couple of years is that the biggest obstacle, really, to Labour is people thinking there's really nothing that can be done, that austerity is sort of a, a force of nature, and we've just, we had a party, and now we've got a hangover, and you've just got to ride, ride through it, and the Tories seem to be doing a half-decent enough job of saving a bit of money, tightening the belts, put up with it. That sort of stoicism is a big threat. And so, so he needs to have those things, as, exactly as George outlines, but he also needs to be able to say how he could afford them. And then he there's an ongoing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go so far as to characterise it as a struggle, but negotiation with Ed Balls, who is the person whose job it is to say, well, unless you can come up with a good, another wheeze as to how we'd actually have the money to build your houses, or where the money would come from to plug the gap from you know, scrapping the bedroom tax, you're not going to announce it. And that, I think, that conversation is going right up to the wire. I mean, it's probably happening as we speak. But this tension about kind of whether or not you have to be pessimistic and attack the Tories versus whether or not you have to offer a positive vision of the future is something that comes out in both of the pieces we've got. So we have um, a piece by Stella Creasy, who's kind of anointed rising star, seemed to be had a very good summer, saying that Labour's got to be optimistic. And then on the other hand, you had your interview, Raph, with Rachel Reeves, where she says, we've got to make sure we're not, what's the word, ripped apart. Ripped apart by the Tories in the campaign. Exactly. Rachel's concern that comes out very strongly in that interview is the sense that if we, if they, as it were, sort of surrender to the impulse to say, yes, we hate this cut. Yes, we hate the bedroom tax. Yes, God, we, we these coalition cuts are so awful, we, we can't possibly stomach them. You build up, essentially, every time you say something like that, a pile of de facto spending pledges that become in a Tory campaign uh, Ed Balls' black hole on spending or Ed Balls' middle-class tax bombshell because the under implication is you have to tax people more to pay for those things. And so they are very, very concerned about that. And I think justifiably so. Uh, the point I think that Stella is making uh, is that the only way Labour navigates through this is by getting very excited about different ways of delivering public services, different ways of delivering the things government has traditionally done without spending more money. And that's so in healthcare, thinking more about prevention rather than just the, you know picking up the cost of 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 sickness when it happens. You know, educating, working with people to to look after their own health, or, or you know, there's a whole range of things. It's quite a, a dense. Um, but actually, well, I should say, elegant and immensely readable essay, go buy the magazine. <laughs> right, yeah. And George, that's quite interesting to talk about a middle class tax bombshell, because is it the IFS report that said whoever gets in, there will be tax rises after the election, but which is kind of the elephant in the room for both parties? Yes, if you look at the data 
for our, over the last few decades, one constant trend is that taxes always go up by several billion pounds after the election. And conveniently, none of the parties ever talk about it in advance. So the Tories did this last time with the VAT rise. And they said, we have no plans to raise VAT. And they put it up by 2.5% to 20%. George Osborne's hoping to go into the election campaign in 2015 saying, we will eliminate the remainder of the deficit through cuts alone. There will be no tax rises. As if he's just going to pull the same trick again. And um... my, It's interesting. that I mean, because I mean, that's basically a lie. It's not a lie. That's a bit harsh. But I, my, uh, my reading of that is that he has, he's a clever man, George Osborne. And what he's understood is that it's really hard for the Tories to get a majority. They could be in coalition with the Lib Dems. So he can at least say Tories believe in not raising taxes, that we believe in tax cuts, knowing that if it comes to it, he can, uh, if he has to, forms a coalition with the Lib Dems and go, we've had to stomach these tedious Lib Dem tax rises, but the Tories still really believe in low taxes. Talking of this, how is the plan for the Lib Dems um, free school meals for, for younger children, how is that to be funded? I've read, I was told that it was going to be funded through cuts elsewhere. So it's coming out of existing money. This is not this is not new money. I mean, what they've done quite smartly is how they've, they've, they've said, well, this is what we're getting in return for the marriage tax allowance, which... They, they had the right to abstain on, not to vote against. So the Tories could probably have tried to get that through in any case. Um, and now the Tories... The marriage tax balance, is that supposed to cost 500 million? Yeah. But in one of, in one of the worst targeted policies ever. ever. Absolutely. It's <laughs> not it's even going to be policy. for all married couples. It's only where you have one partner who's at home and not using their personal tax allowance. So I think only a third of married couples will actually I, get it. It's very interesting. I At the end of the Lib Dem conference, I found myself um, uh, sort of close to the backstage area uh, and in a conversation with some very senior... <laughs> so it makes it sound like Glastonbury. Yeah, well, it's it's very it. like Glastonbury, um, except without the music or the drugs or the fun. Um and talking to very senior Lib Dems and they were loving what they had just pulled off they were they could hardly contain their glee at the fact that what they that they got to announce free hot meals for disadvantaged children and the Tories got a you know reactionary uh, play only to their base marriage you know, tax cut for married couples that doesn't really affect anyone and reinforces all sorts of toxic impressions that the Tories has obsessed with you know the 1950s model of, of households I mean, so, they, they were but that speaks to a bigger point doesn't it which is the Lib Dems have come out of their conferences and not even just chipper positively kind of ecstatic plague has been reborn I mean, the conference speech he gave yesterday is one that some people he would never make they thought by then he'd have been deposed as leader preparing to return to Brussels as, as, the, as Britain's new EU commissioner and he's he's been uh, lifted by the, the easily by election, which convinced them we're not going to be wiped out in 2015. The economic recovery, which I think actually look, there's some good news. Maybe we can take some credit for this being part of the government. And then I think also by the fact that another hung parliament does look more much more likely than it did a year ago. And in this final segment, I like to call Helen's hostage to fortune. Do what do you think will be in Edmund Man's conference speech? One guess. Actually, you've already had housing, so housing, you have to yeah. do something else apart from housing. I would think there will be some development on the living wage because the Tories and Lib Dems have started to talk seriously about how they could increase the minimum wage um, by more uh, than in recent years uh, to try and restore its real value. I would think you would say this is how a Labour government. It won't introduce a living wage everywhere, but this is how we want to ensure millions more people are paid the living wage. I have, I'm afraid I'm going to disagree with George on that. And in that area, something about uh, making sure either the minimum wage or the living wage uh, rise more in, in accord with inflation, because obviously that is the thing that has, has eroded people's spending power. I think housing, 
um, and it will the focus of it will be we've done the intellectual airy fairy thinking abstract stuff but now here's something for you to you know meaty to chew on on at your kitchen table as you're staring at your uh, yet another massive gas bill and worrying about how you're going to get your train fare to work thank you very much George and Raph I'm joined by our arts editor Kate Mossman to talk about Elton John who has a new album coming out called The Diving Board which is released on 24th of September. Now um, you've written about Elton for the magazine and you used a really curious phrase you described him as our national mother hen. (laughs) What does this mean? Yeah I think Elton's got two careers on the one hand he's a working musician Uh, people often forget this he does 200 shows a year Um, And he used to be a sort of Tin Pan Alley songwriter. He came up through um, Warner Publishing and he's he's got a a kind of a a craftsman's attitude towards music, which he still has. He he was put together with Bernie Taupin and they write very quickly. They do songs in, you know, half an hour and stuff. So there's that side of him. But also what we think about him uh, nowadays is someone who's in the Daily Mail every week because... He's name-checked another celebrity who's desperately in need of rehab or his help. <laughs> um, and he's quite, it's, it's a charming thing in a way. I mean, there are a lot of people who have responded very well to it. Um, Rufus Wainwright and Eminem and Robbie Williams all had help from him when they were going through alcohol and drugs problems. And then there's another sort of section of celebrities that don't want their help at all, like George Michael and um, Billy Joel, who are both apparently sort of name-checked on air or in interviews as being, you know, you've got to get into rehab. And they said, well, it's none of your business. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, so he is, he's a kind of fusspot. Um, nanny, and, nanny state. <laughs> yeah, and it was interesting because this gig was at the Roundhouse, so they're part mm. of the iTunes Festival. Um, which has had, you know, the lineup of the iTunes Festival gets better every year. It's uh, stuff like Justin Timberlake now, these mm. huge names that you never saw, thought you were going to see. Their Gaga obviously started it off. And uh, it was interesting because there's a big queue of people outside every night who can't get in because of a ticketing process, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but he um, he had a huge crowd of people trying to trying to squeeze in, lots and lots of young people as well. And the entire um, wing of the balcony on the right-hand side was taken up with celebrity friends who get constant nods throughout the show. So there was Stephen Fry and Rupert Everett and Harry Styles from One Direction and... It's a kind of love-in, proper celebrity love-in. Um, but young people, you talk about the young people being there. Do you think that the reason they're familiar with him is because he's, you know, giving advice to Lindsay Lohan in yeah, the tabloids? Yeah, and I think he's somebody that you have to see. I mean, it's sort of, there are always certain, there are certain one-offs in the um, in the national culture. You have to kind of go and see Elton John. He's, what is he now, 64 or something? And it's it's something that, you know, presumably your parents would be pleased to hear that you went along to see Elton that night. It's, it's He's such a, a sort of ubiquitous figure. He's moved in people's minds away from music and does all sorts of other things, like works in loads of charities. So it's, it's, it is kind of a something to do. <laughs> it's weird. It reminds me a bit about of how people used to turn out for the royal family in the old pictures with the little flags, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we had sort of bake sales and street parties and stuff. And there was a bit of that atmosphere with him. So it was quite a special gig. His music has always been influenced uh, by America and um, American sort of musical subgenres. But has... See, the last thing I heard of him was, you know, he's doing shows every night in uh, Las Vegas. Um, has has he brought any of that kind of uh, casino city with him? Yeah, I mean, particularly in his diction and his, his voice. His voice has dropped a lot, mm. um, as it does when people get older. 
and it, it, there's a razzle dazzle element to it. There's a liberaciness going on. There's a lot of um, a sort of dynamic virtuosic piano playing, which is great because again, the piano is an instrument that you don't see enough of in in modern rock, really. I mean, Tom O'Dell, who he's actually is one of his new proteges, is a a singer-songwriter who works at the piano in this quite flamboyant way, but it does seem unusual. I mean, Rufus Wainwright did, obviously, and Billy, Billy Joel was piano-based. But there, so there is that kind of, look, this is the instrument, this is what I do, sort of swivels himself around and opens his legs and, you know, stands up every now and again and punches the air because he's, he's sort of wrestling with a quite an unsexy instrument in a way. It's not like a guitar where you can throw it around. It is a great big coffin-like thing that you're, you're sort of stuck to on the stage. Um, but he doesn't do his red piano show anymore. He finished that a couple of years ago, but that was his uh, his hits show in Vegas. So yeah. I'm sure that there was there was an element of bringing that. I mean, there are all sorts of strange backdrops. There were naked men and, and kittens and sort of um, kitsch 1960s kind of beach images on the back. And then for one of the new songs called Home Again, he's got uh, uh, he's done this kind of very thoughtful montage of young men walking across moors and staring into bathroom mirrors. And it reminded me a bit of um, the video that he shot with Robert Downey Jr. in it a couple of years ago. So he doesn't really perform in his own promo videos anymore. He gets these really good looking actors to do it. It's like, why not? If you can, just do it. Yeah. And what do you actually make of the new album? I like it, but it, to me, it's it's um, no better than the uh, the reunion which he did with Leon Russell a couple of years mm. ago, which was the, the sort of first step to saying, "Hello, people! Remember who Elton John is? Remember what he writes like?" There's lots of sort of gospel, um, uh, gospel rock influenced stuff. Early the early seventies albums can be sort of felt in songs like you know "Gone to Shiloh," mm. and, and there's sort of various sort of there's a new album. There's a lot of kind of um, uh, romantic. Um, bohemian poetic imagery there's a song called oscar wilde gets out which is all about when oscar wilde went to paris after reading jail mm. um so it's like they've consciously gone back and thought well, you know what what was it we did really well that people liked let's do it again um but that's not a cynical move i mean it's obviously just something that he's they were going to do it eventually and then he's sort of it's nice now that we're being reminded of the fact that he does have this Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He had these roots, and it's not all synths and... Um, yeah. Leon Russell was quite well-received. Yeah, very well, correctly. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you, can't, you can't do anything wrong if you do that in music now, if you, especially if you get T-Bone Burnett to produce, which they do. It puts this kind of sepia-tinged uh, edge of authenticity to everything, and it. I mean, it is funny that in the press release they're talking about, um, you know, this was written very, very quickly. But he basically always writes songs quickly, and yeah. he always gets given the lyrics by Bernie first, and then sets them to music, and it's all fairly swift, practical process. But they they do have to remind people of that kind of thing every now and again. And um, as the whole as this generation of musicians gets older, like everything they do becomes more interesting it's like we're looking at their early lives down the wrong end of a telescope suddenly you're sort of you want to know about the, the brill building type days you want to know about when he worked in a record shop alongside danny baker mm. um it's sort of fascinating you can un- un- uncover all the early layers of the, the person's career i think speaking of authenticity um the itunes festival I-, I went to the itunes festival a couple of weeks ago and i saw queens of the stone age and this is my f- my my debut um <laughs> And I, you know, I described it to friends as being like going to a gig in an I- iPhone shop, you know, yeah. in an Apple <laughs> shop, sorry, um, in that it was extremely well kind of controlled. 
Um, it was all very clean. The sound was great. Cannot fault, you know, the kind of technical side of things. Very impressive. I didn't really know what it was, I'll be truthfully yeah. honest with you, until I kind of arrived. And then actually the next day I went back and watched some of the um, other bands that you can watch live. I mean, it's for free. Um, it, you know, I've, I've heard you mention Jules Holland in the past. Like This is this is kind of uh, the digital Jules, is it not? I yeah, mean, what it, has do you make its, it? it has its place. It's... Um... I've always found it quite sterile and slightly disappointing seeing people there because they have such amazing lineups and you don't feel the intimacy because the person is uh, limited in what they can say in between songs because it's a very finite time period. It's mm. being broadcast. Um, they can't do a lot of chat and ad-libbing on stage. So you do you tend to get a slightly sanitised version of the, the personality. Um, you didn't have any crazy stories about naked men falling out of parachutes by Elton. You had sort of, you know... Um, oh, I've been very blessed. I've had a terrific career, thanks to you guys. And all these little kind of snippets that you you expect to hear, but they don't really add anything of the... There's no kind of uh, sexiness to the performance. Um, but at the same time, it is, yeah, as you say, it's pin drop beautiful sound. Um, you can see it all on screen the next day and you can see things you would never catch from way back in the audience. Mm. I think the only problem with iTunes is that it does... Uh, it disappoints thousands of people every year because you can't get in. You just can't. I mean, you, you, people will see that Lady Gaga's playing there. They may be the kind of people that would queue up to see her for seven days on the trot outside her hotel, but they will enter that ballot and they won't win tickets. But somebody who doesn't really give a damn about Lady Gaga might because they happen to click, you know, fancy tickets for Monday night. Mm. So sometimes you get... Um, an audience which is half full because <laughs> no one particularly wanted to see the group. And sometimes you get an audience of people who just sort of have this funny reserve and, and detachment from what's on stage because they didn't really sort of queue up to see it. So it is, it's a funny thing, but I think it's, you know, it does have its place and there isn't much music TV um, in terms of live music out there. And at least they do it properly. I just don't know. I don't know how much it can benefit iTunes because they don't really need anything. <laughs> so this, no. this is not going to generate anything for iTunes. They already rule the world. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. And I can't imagine it generates that much for the Roundhouse because they're, you know, it's not their. They're not selling tickets. They're just hiring the space out. But um, no, I guess it is just the because they're also, you know, there's an app now. It's quite ubiquitous online, and it's sort of growing in that regard. I wonder if. The Roundhouse is just a studio for this, mm, you know, mm. really. And but I do know what you mean. I mean, I was standing towards the back of this gig and was there for not particularly, for quite disingenuous reasons. I was yeah. there because a friend was tour managing the Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and I think a lot of other people were there for kind of reasons that they weren't quite sure. You know, there, there were people sort of enjoying the gig, but I think they were just enjoying the gig because they were at a gig. Yes. I don't think they were especially in love with Josh Homme and his, uh, his friends. No, I think when you do attend these things, there's, um, you know, the Other Voices Festival that happens mm. in Dingle in Ireland. Um, and that's sort of, uh, that's the most extreme version of an unaccessible festival in a way, because it's it's held in a tiny little church with seats for 80 people. And, um, but it is broadcast, it's broadcast all over the town in pubs on big screens. And so on the one hand, if you attend it, you think, oh, this is terribly undemocratic. This mm. is awful. No one can get in. Um, poor people sort of standing on the street outside. And the other hand, well, the whole point is that it's being broadcast to more people than you could imagine. So I guess that that's, that's this. You have to forget that iTunes is a festival and treat it as a TV show that you happen to be lucky to get into. I mean, it even starts with a countdown from 10 to 1. It's like being at the old top of the pop studio or something. Yeah. But the sound is perfect in that place. It's beautiful. It's like a sort of circus tent sound. And um, I have to say that he was actually too loud. I had that thing where my... 
I think they turned turned his voice up a bit, and I had that thing where my eardrums were vibrating, and I felt slightly nauseous. Yeah. <laughs> like Elton, tone it down a bit, because he does have such a booming voice nowadays. But but no, he was he was fantastic. He's he's, a, he's there's nobody quite like him, and I think I wonder if uh, Billy Joel and George Michael will ever take his advice. But <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Thanks for talking to us, Kate. Thank you. Sarah Dyson and Holly Batson to talk about how awesome One Direction are. Right, guys? Yes. So, Sarah, come on, tell us about this. You wrote a a blog for us about taking your children, both of them? No, one. One. My my daughter. To see the One Direction film. Yes. And the hormonal madness that ensued. Yeah, not, I should say, not the hormonal madness of my daughter, because she's only seven, so she's still kind of in the... She finds it interesting to watch, and and she... loves the band but she's not quite in that and kind screamy of rich kind of. fog of estrogen yet thank god but it's all um, to look forward to i know i well having watched it i i cannot wait <laughs> it looks horrifying yeah. um but it is weird because i think as an adult having sort of come out of the time when you felt that um sort of deep compulsion and basic madness of teenage desire uh, and then to look at it on a film just think oh my god that is absolutely insane how how can this be happening and there be any doubt about the fact that teenage girls are absolutely ferocious sexual agents in their own right this is <laughs> holly who was your teenage crush on um, who was your Zane? Look, see, I, don't <laughs> I even know two of their names. I think Jack Ryder was my Zane. Do you remember Jack Ryder? He kind of had curtains. Was he in Hollywood? Um, blonde, I think so. I didn't even watch the programme he was in. I just ri- ripped out pictures of him from magazines, put them on my wall. But I never did this crazy thing that um, fans of One Direction do, um, which is go on social media, partly because social media didn't exist. But, um, we used to send each other pigeons yeah. saying how excited we were about the latest bands on the yeah. phonogram. Mainly used owls. But um, didn't do that and then like abuse other people who liked them. I think that's what's really terrifying about the One Direction thing. Like the level of abuse that Taylor Swift had when she went out with Harry Styles, how she got loads and loads of death threats and things like that, and how when GQ put um, 1D on the cover, Apparently they got loads and loads and loads of abuse to the editorial team, to each member, saying I'm yeah. going to come and kill you. Yeah, I can like remember, because um, I was I was too cool for school, so I was not into boy bands. I really fancied um, Brett Anderson. <laughs> you and I are showing our age, so I'm going to go, oh, do you remember Blur? Do you remember well, Blur? Yeah. One of my friends um, really liked Oasis, and her big crush was Noel Gallagher. And we used to say poisonous things about his um about his partners just like hanging out at school saying absolutely like similarly vicious stuff to the thing because it's just part of the because you're a kid and you've got no (laughs) (laughs) essentially got no sense of other people as humans but this ties in i mean this ties in quite well you've reviewed in the magazine this week sarah um melissa ben's book Mm. which we tell our daughters which is all about this idea about how you pass on knowledge to the next generation and actually how you try and understand people whose experience of being a teenage girl is so different i mean i thank god every single day not that he or she exists that um there was no social media when i was growing up that there were no digital cameras there was certainly no smartphones when i was at university and before because that stew of 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 being watched constantly all Mm. the time of any kind of tiny little transgression being recorded forever frightens me witless it's 
it's a strange one, isn't it? I think it's something that, um, well, my, my son's 11 now and he's on Facebook and you can see him and his friends just kind of negotiating their way around it and working out how to do it. And they, they will work it out because they just they just live in it the same way that I lived in Cfax. <laughs> so, I know, Can isn't text. it awful? But that is that, so is that, is, I mean, this is a question I always think about. I was asking um, Lily from the Twitter Feminist Youth Army at the yeah. weekend in an event. How much of this is a moral panic about adults who don't understand new technologies? And yeah. how much, for example, like I know that Vigenda talk a lot to young girls. How much mm. pressure do they feel over, about over things like sexting and, you know, photos of them going around school and being forced to do sort of sexually suggestive things? I think they feel quite under pressure. But then again, I don't think it's actually a pressure that I didn't feel in the school corridors. Because I'm like, my family is quite a good um, sort of, test case for that because I'm the oldest and I'm 24 and then I've got um, two younger sisters who are 17 and 18 at the moment so I got Facebook when I was sort of 17 but they then got it under sort of fake age accounts when they were 13 and 12 and um, they've certainly both experienced this um, this sort of culture of sexting and things through their friends and I see it going on in the Facebooks and it really terrifies me and they do talk about the pressure but then they also seem to have just got some ability to deal with it as if it's normal life. But for me, I look at it and it's not normal at all because it didn't happen. But that's what worries me. I mean, there's a big story in Rolling Stone this month about um, sexing and a girl who committed suicide after boys allegedly drew all over in her marker pen when she was passed out and she woke yeah. up to find mm. all this stuff all over herself. You wrote about an incident at the M&M yeah. gig a month ago where a girl was photographed giving yeah. oral sex to a guy and that photo went like wildfire on Twitter, despite the fact, as yeah. it turned out, she was underage and therefore it was child pornography. Yeah, it's, um, I think the um, the penalties for that kind of transgression are intense. And I think where once a bad night out as a 16-year-old might have ended up with a story that spread to the school, like outside of your own school, now a bad night out is something that can like go viral globally and that is I think as as we've already found with um, some of the individuals you've just mentioned that is something that is very very hard to cope with and that's a different issue to the kind of the day-to-day social aspect of kids coming to terms with social media and managing their own relationships on it I think is probably something that for the most part they muddle through and they do quite well for themselves it's when it goes wrong and there's no comeback there is no you know there is no undo once something like that happens and it's how you can bring them up to be sufficiently fearless and confident in themselves while at the same time having to negotiate a world that will punish them horrifically if they make the wrong mistake in the wrong place with the wrong person watching. I also like the idea of of, of adults making social networking really uncooled. So there's a great quote from um, Barack Obama when they said that if, if either of his daughters got a tattoo, he said that he and Michelle will get the exact same tattoo in the exact same place, which would instantly like, render it like, a completely useless piece of teenage rebellion. But I wonder if that isn't part of it, right? So it, it's a generational thing in the sense that we first got the internet in my house when I was about 1997, I was about 14. Yeah. Um, my parents didn't understand at all anything about yeah. it, but I imagine you probably are a bit more, you know, clued up on what your kids are doing online. Um, yeah, I think so. And I think part of the problem is that you want to give them some distance as well. I mean, my son is 11, so he's still in kind of like the kid 
stage. He's not yet at the point where he completely understands how much he's going to want a private life. But when he first started kind of um, make, and, um, taking part in social media, um, we decided we had a rule that he was only meant to make friends with his own friends from school. Um, which was a brilliant rule that he immediately broke by making friends with all of my friends. <laughs> oh, no. So now all your bad behaviour and your big nights well, out. I know, which is horrendous. So I've been all like, you know, I want you to have your own space so I won't be your friend on Facebook. Oh, but now you are friends with all of my friends, so have at it, I am accepting you now. <laughs> Although that said, I'm one of my best friends, her mum is on Facebook and friended me and every so often I go... <gasps> Oh my god! Isn't it mortifying? Well, my mm. grandma's on now, but she like she just looks. Yeah. <laughs> so, every once in a while, I see her, and she'll say, "I didn't think much of that language, Sarah." <laughs> but I think that's—I mean—that is a phenomenally interesting area, right? Isn't it that we're all still we're still at the stage of negotiating? Who are you when you're online? Are what ver- mm. you know, are you playing a version of yourself? Yeah, it's it's very complicated because I suppose you do have to be aware that everybody... I mean, everyone keeps saying you have to be aware that an employer will look when you send in your CV at your Facebook and things like that. So you do have to kind of see your social networking mm. as a facade. But at the same time, it's your outlet as a teenager, usually. And so there's a sort of blurred boundary where you don't exactly know how to deal with that. I mean, my own like moment of embarrassment was when my dad first added me on Facebook... And there was a comical picture of me that I'd taken when I was 18 and I was um, holding like a whole packet of cigarettes, but the individual cigarettes up to my mouth and like pretending to light them all. For a friend. And, um, yeah. <laughs> and my dad commented, I feel that I failed as a parent. Oh, <laughs> ouch. <laughs> the dry paternal <laughs> judgment. Yeah. That was devastating. Well, he maintains it was a joke. Um, I'm going to finish up by asking you to name your favourite One Direction song, both of you. Sarah? It's the best song ever. Because <laughs> it is the best song ever. Oh my god, I think I'm going to have to go with Come On, Come On, but then... Oh, hang there's so more than, you know the names of more than one. Oh, I yeah, threw yeah, this yeah. in because I thought you were going to go that one about being beautiful. No! <laughs> then, what makes you beautiful is obviously um, a genius And then song. I could mock you <laughs> for both for being really out of it and no elderly, but <laughs> actually I would can I go with I would that's my favourite one it's more niche this is making me feel a lot better as um, the regular listeners will know Alex Hearn has just left and he was a huge fan of Carly Rae Jepsen and subjected us to a lot of terrible tween pop on the desk so this is bringing, it's making me very nostalgic and on that note um, Holly and Sarah thank you very much listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Helen Lewis. This week's podcast featured Philip Morn, Kate Mossman, Sarah Dighton, Holly Baxter, George Eaton and Raphael Bear and was produced by Caroline Crampton. Our theme music is taken from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.